Hello, I'm James Jacobson in Maui, Hawaii. And I'm Caroline Winter in Adelaide, Australia. Welcome to Dog Edition, the first show designed for you to listen to while you walk your dogs. On today's episode, the story behind the story with the writer of the movie of The Art of Racing in the Rain, Mark Bomback. Now, Jim, I have to admit I haven't seen this one because I find it really hard to watch movies with dogs, particularly if you need tissues. But I know that this is absolutely a film uh, and a chat that you have very much enjoyed. I love this movie. The first time I saw it, I was on an airplane back when we could fly, and I was crying. It is such a powerful film, and uh, Mark is a delight. I look forward to that one. I will have to watch it. We'll also have the latest Hound headlines, and in our latest Dog Lovers Live discovery, stay tuned for the podcaster, pet calming maestro, and Juilliard alumni who's creating calming music just for pets. So if you love dogs as much as we do, Pause what you're doing, leash up your pup, and let's take a walk, because we've got a lot to talk about on today's episode of Dog Edition. Hey, Pepper, want to go for a walk? So, Carol, on the last episode, we talked about whether dogs could tell time. And, of course, there were quite a few reasons why we might perceive that to be the case if it really isn't the case. But one of those reasons was that dogs take our cues. So, for example, they pick up on how one action might lead to the next. For example, you know, uh, they're eating a meal and then they know as soon as the meal is done, we go out for a walk. Mm -hmm. Spot on. And they watch us so closely, Mm -hmm. so closely. It's a bit unnerving at times, but I guess that's how they pick up on our cues. Um, And they pick up on our social signals and learn from us all the time, I guess even when they're not being trained in any sort of formal way. So what if I told you that part of that watching helps them determine whether or not we are lying? Really? Okay. Tell me more. Okay. I will tell you the truth. No lie here. (laughs) What dogs do is they tend to ignore suggestions from people who are not telling the truth, from people who are lying. They may be able to recognize when a person is deceiving them. They're able to suss that out. This sounds really fascinating. So, wait, have you ever seen this in action? I have. I I think some dogs I would like, well, some of my dogs I tried to like fool into doing something like, okay, come, it's a treat. And I didn't really have a treat in my hand and they wouldn't come. Because they knew that something in my voice Mm. wasn't ringing true or something. They were able to suss me out, which is why you should never lie to your dog. Absolutely. That is so true. And if only that worked so well with humans, right? Um, (laughs) Well, some humans are better, you know, BS detectors than others. Like our listeners are really smart. They know we're telling them the truth right now. Absolutely, because they've got dogs. They do. And they, they get it from them. Hand in hand. All right, so we can pontificate all we want, but surely there's there's some science behind this, right? There certainly is. And to do that, we have to go to Austria. At the University of Vienna, Ludwig Huber, I think we'll do that name right, Ludwig Huber, and his colleagues did an experiment with 260 dogs from different breeds and different backgrounds, and they learned that dogs react differently to false information given to them by a misinformed person than they do to a human who is flat out lying to them. 
Right. So just by extrapolation, does that mean that they can tell when a human isn't being truthful with them? That is basically the thrust of their research. To explain how this experiment was conducted, let's recreate it with the help of an actor. There are two people in this experiment, both unknown to the dog, the hider and the communicator. There are two bowls. The hider's job was to put food in the first bowl. And the communicator's job was to let the dog know which bowl to choose to find the food. They do that by going to the bowl and touching it, then looking at the dog and saying, look, this is very good. Once the communicator built trust with the dog, scientists took the experiment to the next level. And the hider would move the food. Now, I'm assuming they presumably move the food like by scooping up the kibble and putting it from one bowl to another? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yes, they move it from the first bowl to the second bowl, you idiot. But anyway, here's the interesting part. Sometimes the communicator were in the room watching the hider do the switch, and sometimes they were not. So, of course, the communicator didn't know if the food had been moved. But for this experiment, the communicator had to always recommend the first bowl. So, of course, I guess that means that the first bowl could be empty or or maybe not empty. Yeah, and so what they, I guess, were really testing then is how the dog's choice of the bowl was affected by what the communicator did. Exactly! So whether the communicator stayed in the room and watched where the food was being hidden or if they'd left the room while the hiding was actually happening. Right, so did that mean that if the communicator stayed in the room and watched the food being hidden, it was perceived that they were intentionally misleading the dog? But when they left the room and genuinely didn't know which bowl it was in, the dog could somehow tell that they didn't know in a really genuine fashion. Yes, so much to the researcher's surprise, Half of the dogs followed the communicator's misleading advice if the communicator had not witnessed the switch of the food. But about two-thirds of the dogs ignored a communicator who had, in fact, watched the bowls being switched and still suggested the now-empty bowl. These dogs simply went to the bowl filled with food. Instead, they were not duped because they are lie detectors. How smart are doggos? Mm -hmm. So actually trusting their instincts over someone that they've come to trust, in this case the Austrian communicator, Mm -hmm. but then kind of being understanding or forgiving when they've been misinformed because of a genuine mistake. And there I thought, Any dog would just trust anyone when it came to food in bowls. (laughs) No, as our friends in Austria say, that is not the case. The dogs are very, very clever. (laughs) Oh, okay. Thank you, Mr. Austrian. We will be right back. Pamela Lawrence will join us for this next story. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I 
want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Eva Pup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. Pam, are there certain movies that are guaranteed to make you cry? Well, Jim, I confess I am a middle-aged woman and also a mother, so I can pretty much cry at, you know, a car commercial. (laughs) Yes. You know, I'm not a middle-aged mother, but uh, for some (laughs) reason I've always found commercials, especially ones with puppies and and things that can really pull at my heartstrings and they're very cathartic, um, which is really what The Art of Racing in the Rain, the movie that we're going to talk about, which was released in 2019, is it was advertised as a movie that would make you cry, a good kind of cry. When you see it, you will be happy and sad and filled with energy, but you're going to cry. But it's one of those good cries. I sat down with Mark Baumbach, who wrote the screenplay. I'd never written anything that made someone cry before, and I remember getting a real charge out of, like, people telling me, the executives I was working with, like, oh, my wife came into the room, or my husband came into the room and saw me crying, and I told them I had just finished the script. And you uh, you watched it on an airplane, right? I did, and I was literally bawling, and, you know, I had my headphones <laughs> on, and I had, like, a meal in front of me that I wasn't touching, and the flight attendant looked very concerned, not that I wasn't eating the food, because I bet they're used to that, but that <laughs> I was just, like, just so emotionally distraught. And she said, is everything okay? Can I get you anything? Is everything okay? And I was like, yes, it's just the movie. <laughs> anyway, I was very manly about it. <laughs> That's great. Well, Mark Bombach noticed this phenomenon, too. I was going back and forth to L.A., and I would actually intentionally go to the bathroom and just walk down the road to see who was watching it. And I would see people crying. Okay, so maybe without spoilers, because I haven't seen it yet, can you give me a movie summary? You know, what is it about this movie that makes everyone cry? Well, it's pretty. It's a pretty amazing movie. It is based on the best-selling book by Garth Stein, uh, and it features this Formula One race car driver named uh, Denny Swift. Uh, and he understands the techniques needed to really be an amazing Formula One race car driver, which includes basically leveraging rain 
which everyone thinks is horrible, and turning that into an asset in terms of his strategy. But the movie also, most importantly for our purposes, touches on the relationship that he has with a dog and the woman that becomes his wife and their daughter. And it's a beautiful movie. It's actually a movie about loss and grief. Hmm. Okay, see where the, the tears might start welling. Going into this interview, I thought for sure that Mark Bomback had to have a, you know, had to have been a huge dog lover to write such a powerful film script. You'd think so, but he wasn't always a huge dog lover. That's because as a kid, he was bitten by a German shepherd when he was like nine years old. And um, had a deep and I think justified fear of certain dogs, you know, and uh, and my parents were you know, Jews in New York. It was like, they just don't get dogs for the most part. And so um, we had a turtle. I don't think the movie would have had the same emotional impact if it was about a turtle. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, a producer friend of Mark's called him up and said, there's a book, The Art of Racing in the Rain, that I just read. Do you have a dog? And I said, uh, no, I don't have a dog. I have a couple of kids who've been begging me for a dog. We've been thinking about it. So Mark read the book. It did really tug at my heart, even as someone who didn't have a, a dog. And not long after signing on the project, Mark brought home a yellow lab to the family, and they named it Jagger. Uh, was this all in the name of research? Or his kid's power of persuasion. <laughs> Which I can speak from experience is very strong. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the dog in the movie, Enzo. Enzo is very significant now that the name is very significant when you see the movie. It's it's basically the name of Enzo Ferrari. Mm. Ah, back to the race cars. Ba- yeah. Back to yeah. the race cars, yeah. Now, I've heard that there's a Mongolian belief about dogs that inspired the author of the book, Garth Stein, to write the story. Do you, do you know something about that? I do um, because uh, I've been researching it because it's so fascinating. It deals with reincarnation. Um, with these Bankar dogs, Yeah, right? so these dogs have a fascinating history. And they were used by nomadic herders in Mongolia to protect livestock from predators. And then sometime during the Soviet era, which lasted, I don't know, from, you know, 1920s to 1990s, these dogs were phased out. And they were all but wiped out, um... Herders were made to use firearms and traps and other methods to protect livestock. Well, the Soviet era ends, and now there are all these groups that are trying to bring these bunkar dogs back because, number one, they're a source of national pride. It's a great honor for a herder to own one of these dogs and take care of one of these dogs. And two, it's better for the environment. It's a more sustainable way to, you know, to protect your livestock as a herder. And there's this belief that these generations of dogs basically reincarnate. And then in their last reincarnation, they because they have the same spirit as a human, their, their last reincarnation, they come back as a human. Now, you could argue that's a bit human-centric and that maybe it's a better life to be, to be a dog. I, many times I think that. But at least in the, in the world of the story, that is... That is Certain dogs' ultimate aspirations is to is to really truly understand human behavior to the extent that that they've cracked the riddle of what it means to be a human. 
And I think that of the spirit sort of really implies that there's a deep connection between humans and dogs. Mm -hmm. The movie explores the possibility that maybe that's a lopsided connection. There's something a little bit bittersweet about the, the, the inequality of how much a dog can love a human versus a human can love a dog. And I think there's something about Enzo's fantasy of we will all love each other equally if I could just be one of them. But as someone with dogs, I can say that that connection, whether or not lopsided, is definitely real and definitely understood. Anyone who has a dog at some point assumes their dog is truly understanding what they're saying to them. And it may not be verbal communication, but there is deep, deep communication happening between us. And to bring that communication into focus in the movie, the director had an important casting choice to make. I mentioned to Simon Curtis, the director, that, you know, Redford was the voice in my head. Of course, screenwriters don't usually get a say in that decision. And I think he immediately said, what about Kevin Costner? He's like, he sounds so, his voice has gotten so gravelly with age, he just sounds so wise. Well, Robert Redford and Kevin Costner do have very similar sounding voices. Yeah, they do. And they took a run at him and he said, sure, if I can record it where I live and... I'm sure it was one of the easiest jobs he's ever had. I think they did all the recording in his home. And uh, it's just a couple of days of work for him, and he just lays it in. And then when we would tweak things in the editing room, um, Simon would reach out to him and say, Kevin, uh, we had to change this line to accommodate this moment in the scene. Can you re-record it by the magic of audio recording? Next thing we knew, we had a new line the next day, and we plugged it in. Call it fate, call it luck. All I knew was I was meant to be his dog. You saw the movie, Jim. Did the director make the right choice? He did. Kevin Costner nailed it. I love that he could literally call it in from <laughs> from home. Uh, he he nailed it. Uh, I wouldn't have thought that you know Kevin's gravelly voice would be appropriate, but it was just extraordinary. It really captured the film, and you really felt like you knew Enzo uh, through the amazing voice work. I think there's something about Kevin Costner in particular. There's a slightly um, salt of the earth quality. And I think that, you know, kept it feeling grounded. Some of the language Enzo uses veers towards the philosophical. Remember, this film is at its heart about loss. And it does leave you with a sense of optimism about loss, which is very hard to pull off, you know, and it doesn't feel insincere. It feels... Very earned. So if you're looking for a good cry this weekend, this movie might be a great choice to stream. But stock up on tissues first. <laughs> hmm We will be right back after this. Welcome back to Dog Edition. Well, the breadth of dog-loving podcasters and YouTubers out there is growing, and we're all about finding and sharing some of the most entertaining, fabulous, and interesting shows. Jim, on Dog Lovers Live, our live stream show, you've been speaking with some really great guests, from animal intuitives to pet sitters to crazy dog mums, and we've been including some of the highlights on Dog Edition to give everyone a sample. So who's your latest guest? Our latest guest is a pet-calming maestro and a graduate of the prestigious Juilliard School. 
She is, of course, a musician, and she plays piano just for pets in every episode of her podcast. It's called My Zen Pet, and she describes the show as the first podcast with music for pets and their owners, and she encourages them to listen together and cuddle up on the couch. I create music, doggone calm music, that's designed to be soothing and calming for both ends of the leash. So the podcast, My Zen Pet, features music from that album, and along with Zen Pet training tips so people can have a Zen canine household, pet household. And you're playing classical music that you literally play yourself because you are a concert pianist with, I don't know, you went to some school called Juilliard? Yeah. (laughs) So clearly mom and dad must have been thrilled to know that, you know, that investment is paying off playing music for dogs. (laughs) You know, I start every podcast with saying my Juilliard degree has gone to the dogs and I couldn't be more thrilled. It's better than Carnegie Hall. When your music is playing in 1,500 shelters, increasing adoption rates, saving lives, it's better than Carnegie Hall. The podcast is relatively new, but your efforts in this space are not new. You've been doing this for a number of years, and you've been featured on CBS and NPR and tons of media because you play this amazing, well-proven music that does calm a beast's soul for dogs. And you've been doing that for a while. I came up with the idea a long time ago. It was 2003. At the time, my full-time profession, I owned, I was a performer and I owned a music school in my community of Half Moon Bay. I was also a volunteer puppy raiser for guide dogs for the blind. So I was learning, I had classes of four-year-olds and I had tired kids after school. And I had, you know, as you can imagine, the four-year-olds would come in like just, you know, lively and running around and I needed to settle them down. So I wanted to learn prescriptions of music, what worked to calm the kids in the classroom. I found that the music that was chilling out the kids would keep my four-month-old guide dog puppy would be snoring in no time. So I was like, great, the kids are calm, but I'm really on to something <laughs> with this dog music. And now, all these years later, there's a lot of music for pets, but at the time, there was hardly anything, and at the time, there was hardly any research either. So which artists, I mean, I've listened to some of your podcasts, you had Schumann, you know, who, whose music do you think works the best? There is no one composer that works the best. People say, well, do dogs like Bach? Do they like Mozart? It's really not about that. It's about, first of all, I think it needs to be a single instrument. So the the instruments that would work, that would be conducive to calming dogs would be piano, cello, guitar, and harp. And the reason why is they have access to the lower frequencies without being like if you look think of a violin or a flute or a higher instrument um when i was raising that guide dog puppy and i was rehearsing with a world-renowned flutist flautist sometimes she calls herself um my puppy would bark because those higher frequencies were hurting his ears so it's a combination of what is calming for both ends of the leash and 
one of the first things I do when I work with clients is have them pay attention to their household sound environment. What beeps can you turn off? What Bluetooth devices can you unplug? What, you know, there's lots of technology sounds that we can control. And of course, you can watch Jim's full dog lovers live stream with Lisa Spector, host of My Zen Pets, Try Not to Fall Asleep, which is part of our summer show at dogloverslive.com. And that's the show for today. Thanks for bringing Dog Edition along with you on your walk. If you liked what you heard, why not go back and have a listen to some of our other episodes? You can also check out Dog Podcast Network's sister show. It's called The Long Leash. And you can hear some of my extended conversations with with some of the guests that you hear on this show. This week, I sit down with Mark Cushing, who is an author and a TED Talker. And his book is called Pet Nation. He describes our connection with pets as the love affair that changed America. I reckon it might be um, extended to change the rest of the world too. It's changed the world, but (laughs) his focus is the US. It's a really interesting conversation. Check it out on The Long Leash. And next time on Dog Edition, a reunion story ready-made for the silver screen when a family of rescue dogs from Texas all end up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Until then, go to our website at dogedition.com where you can leave us a voicemail and share your thoughts and story ideas with us. Just click on the little blue button you'll find in the bottom right of every episode page and click on that microphone and leave us a voicemail. Or you can do it the traditional way by sending us a message through the website. Again, dogedition.com. And of course, if you don't already, then follow Dog Edition in your favorite podcast app. I'm Caroline Winter, your resident news hound. And I'm James Jacobson. Thank you for listening today. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.